Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Indeed, today is the day. It's the second hour of Mornings with Carmen on this Tuesday, uh, Wednesday. <laughs> I know it's Wednesday. I even have my notes right here. Wednesday wisdom. Uh, it's Wednesday, the 13th of November, 2019. Good morning. Good morning. Um, Wednesday wisdom as a, is a hashtag that trends every Wednesday. And so today on social media, you are encouraged to share some Wednesday wisdom or some wisdom on Wednesday. And so my question, my leadoff question is, is this. Um, what are you sharing on social media and what are you sharing on social media today? And is it is it wise? Is it is it wisdom in terms of godliness? Um, what are you choosing to pass on to others as a first importance on the platforms that God has given you right now in this generation to either make a name for yourself or make his name famous? Like, I think this is what it comes down to. Are we using social media not just as a place where we're curating, like where we're consuming but where we are also broadcasting and publishing. And so if you think of yourself uh, in as a person who is a broadcaster of the Word of God, you are sowing the Word of God back into the culture today. How are you doing that on not only in your conversations, but um, in the much bigger voice that you have on social media? Um, most of us talk to more people on social media than we actually physically talk to or talk with in a given day. So I just thought I would uh, lift up a few reminders of of godly wisdom. Proverbs uh, 3.13 says, you know, happy is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. So how do we find wisdom and how do we get understanding would be the question there. Well, we get wisdom from God and we get understanding by the way the Holy Spirit works within us to apply what God has said to the realities of life. And so if we read on in Proverbs in in the 24th chapter, verses 13 and 14, says, My son, eat honey, for it is good, which for those of us who like honey, isn't that a nice affirmation? Uh, My son, eat honey, for it is good, and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. We talk a lot about a future and hope here on Faith Radio. And our future and our hope is in Christ. Our future and our hope is secure in the sovereignty and providence of God. Um, but it does not always seem like in, in any given moment, because of the way the world is operating and because of how hard things might be in the moment, it doesn't always seem as if godly wisdom is producing momentary happy, happiness. Like, Right now, in this moment, I might actually be um, delaying the gratification of eternal happiness, right? I mean, I know I'm going to be eternally happy. I am eternally happy. Even in this moment, I'm eternally happy. But in this moment, there might also be real pain. And the delayed gratification of the application of wisdom in this place and time. 
And I think that for Christians, that is the everyday challenge that we face. We know what the Lord has said, and we know that the Lord is good. And we know that our hope and our future are secure. But sometimes in the midst of it, whatever the it is in your life, in the midst of it, we, you know, the question rises in our minds. I could just do the easy thing. I could just do the expedient thing. I could just do, but we know that that is not the wisdom of the Lord. And I think that that resistance, uh, actually actively resisting the enemies pulling us toward doing something that is expedient and unwise or foolish, that, that is a really hard part of being a Christian in the world in every given moment. So I just wanted to encourage you today on this Wednesday to not only know the wisdom of the Lord, but have the courage um, in every moment to actually apply it to life. Um, I know I'm seeking to do that in my life. I know I fail from time to time. I bet you do too. I'll be praying for you. You be praying for me. Um, and, And let the wisdom of the Lord be on our lips this day. When we come back, I'll be talking with Bill English. He and I, um, I'm going to use the word disintermediation. He's going to use the word disruption. What we're going to talk about um, is is the way that things have become very disintegrated today and what it looks like for you and I as Christians to, um, you know, I don't know, not live as Humpty Dumpty, all broken into a bunch of pieces at the bottom of the wall. So there you go. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Welcome back. Hey, it's good good to hear you, not see you, I guess. But disintermediation. Okay, come on. Where did that come from? So disintermediation is actually yeah. a conversation that pops up from time to time. Any anywhere and any place that the uh that the way we have done it in the past in terms of some kind of intermediary. So the way in which you used to buy your meat and now you order your meat directly. And so you don't really need the local supermarket because you're getting your meat delivered directly to your house. There's no there's no longer an intermediary related to that. So we no longer um, use as many intermediaries as we used to. Middlemen, middlemen, the middleman has been cut out through disintermediation in so many ways in our lives. We get direct, you know, I mean, just think about, you know, getting an eye exam over the internet because you have a web camera and so do they. So all of the people that used to be employed in um, in that space between you and the doctor, you know, we don't need them anymore. This is, that's disintermediation. It ha- it's happening in education. It's happening in, um, obviously, in, in, in the way that things are delivered directly to my house without ha- my having to go somewhere to get it. I mean, on and on and on. You disintermediation. Know, okay, so I... Uh, I uh... I have a number of questions, but I know that's not our topic this morning. So <laughs> <laughs> we might have to have that conversation some other time. Yeah. So uh, access to all that is Disney is now available through something called Disney Plus. Correct. Um, talk about this as a as a disruption, um, and I just view it as one more thing someone is asking me to pay for to get something that used to be aggregated for me in other environments. Well, streaming services, I think most people pay now uh, 
I think the average is about 1.9. Uh, the average person has 1.9 streaming services. Now, I don't know how you get the 0.9. It's an average, right? But they, It's like they, that 2.5 kids. Though. Right, right. But they, uh, kid, they estimate that in another five years, the average person will have five streaming services. And that they will continue, the, the streaming services will continue to become more and more individualized, more targeted, and very specific. So uh, just like there's more and more social media uh, outlets that are, that are opening up that are very targeted and very specific, um, you know, for, for example, there is now a social media out there for cannabis users. There's a million people on the social media platform, but it's only focused on cannabis users. Uh, Facebook usage is down 27%. And the reason for that is because that's the broad. That's, that's kind of like the CBS or the ABC free TV uh, analogy there. And so as, as people become more and more uh, particular about what they watch and they will uh, end up subscribing to more and more services. Disney's trying to enter that market, and they had a bump yesterday, right? They they opened it up, and they had a bump. That most of the problems were resolved by the end of the day, but people were able to sign up, and then they weren't able to stream. And so uh, Disney had to kind of figure that out. But uh, is Disney disrupting? Yeah, in a sense they are, but in another sense, they're just getting on the bandwagon and getting ready to go where everybody else is going. And a little late to the party. I don't think ways. so. I don't think so. Uh, I, th- I, okay. I think we're going to see more streaming services pop up. Uh, you know, for instance, you, you could see a streaming service pop up that's, that's just about, well, you, you already have it here, and I'm using this as an analogy, but just about uh, seeing plays where the ball is thrown into the end zone, right? It's called, it's called the red zone. It's on ESPN. But you could see a whole streaming service about that. Or you might see a streaming service that is just for doctors who do colonoscopies or something weird like Mm. that. You know, there's all kinds of, uh, since everything is going video and visual, that opens up the door to all kinds of individualized streaming services. Okay, so I want to talk about, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to talk, we want to talk about disruption. Right. As a part of the Christian life, um, which is actually the piece you have posted at BibleandBusiness.com related to this. Disruption is a part of the Christian life. We want to talk about um, want to talk about that um, in the context of this larger conversation about you know Disney Plus and other stuff. So I'm talking with Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com. We'll be right back. All right, so um, It's a Small World was my favorite, favorite uh, ride at Disney World when I was a kid. I go as far back as those little tear-off colored coupon things, and you only had so many of certain ones. And for whatever reason, you you got endless rides on It's a Small World, even though you got very limited rides on other things. So there you go. Uh, That's my one Disney story to share and tell today in this conversation about Disney Plus. Talking with Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com. You should go to BibleandBusiness.com and read this disruption is part of the Christian life. And Bill is now thinking that this is a disjointed conversation in which I am functioning as a disruptor, but only because it's a part of the Christian life. So there you go. You know, can I be disintermediated here? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm the one meeting out the music here, man. I'm just meeting it out. It's all Paul's fault. (laughs) 
Paul is the button pusher. Well, it is all his fault. As soon as he hit the button and the song came on, I looked at him and he just looked at me and he shrugged his shoulders. You know, hey, you know, he's the producer. He gets to choose it's the music. recognizable <laughs> Disney music. It is. It is. It is. Okay. So back to the topic of the day. Yes. Okay. Disruption is a part of the Christian life. Go. And that is because the Bible is always disruptive in every uh, culture and society in which it is lived out. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it it just is. And, and you know, we like to think of Christianity in, in kind of these glowing, soft, warm, fuzzy terms. But there's, a, there's an aspect to the fact that when we really step out and blaze for God, that Satan is going to oppose us. And that opposition uh, comes from the fact that we are disrupting his kingdom his world. And as we as we bring people to Christ, as we become salt and light in the world, we are naturally going to be disruptive. And it doesn't matter which culture you're in, doesn't matter what time period of that culture you're in, you will always be disruptive in one way or another because the basic uh, uh, the basic uh, game or war, as it were, between God and Satan is always going on. So the part of, of this piece that I um, that I really want to hone in on is sure. this part about um, morality, this disruption, the way that Christians could function today as disruptors, um, as rebels, as those who say, you know what, right is right and wrong is wrong. And some of the stuff going on in our culture is not right, even though the prevailing uh, thought process of the day has made that which was once understood to be wrong uh, you know, now people think it's right. It's it is very upside down and inside out and Lewis Carroll down the rabbit hole kind of stuff. Sure. Sure. I mean, you know, scriptures tell us to reserve ourselves for marriage. This this is an example, right? Uh, but uh, the fact that people live together for years before they get married uh, is is very common now. The idea of saving yourself from marriage sexually has long ago been jettisoned by our culture. They look at that as prudish, Victorian, old-fashioned, outdated. They make movies like Biblical. The, you know, the 40-year-old virgin, and they make fun of the virgin, right? And that's, that's an example of how, how living out your faith is disruptive to our culture. Yeah, and, and we could settle in just talking about one particular subject like marriage and its value and where its meaning comes from. And so I think that um, going deep into these into these subject matter areas is helpful in conversation. Um, what you and I are trying to do a little bit is to sort of skim the top of the water here and encourage people to consider the disruption of the gospel, the disruption of the teachings of God, the distru- disruption that you and I could be as people who bear God's wisdom into the world um, in ways that honor him, but in ways that are totally counter to the culture of our day. Yeah, and that's that's unique to each person as they as they live in the place that God has planted them, right? And so uh, for a business owner, it, it's about, you know, um, never taking money that you shouldn't have. It's about being totally honest in your marketing and not embellishing, which is a really tough thing to do when it comes mm-hmm. to marketing. <laughs> uh, it's it's really about making sure that uh, you don't take too much money out of the business for yourself and that you have enough there to give away uh, in in the Old Testament uh, sense of, of charity and justice being combined. And so uh, there there are some things that we can do positively to disrupt our our culture, but in the end, the culture uh, is primarily uh, a reflection of who the enemy is, 
and the enemy is going to oppose us. And some of the some of the disruption, uh, the backlash that we're going to get is is going to be difficult to take. So uh, we live in a world of change. You make this observation: ethics, morals, politics, economics, you know, constantly changing. And yet we represent a God who never changes. Isn't that talk, something? Right? It's like, it's like, talk about that. We're, we're living in the context of constant, constant change. But we um, are the children of a God and the ambassadors of a God who never changes. Bingo. That makes me feel very settled and unafraid about what's going on around me. Right. And, and the flip side of that is that God can never be disrupted. There's Mm -hmm. nothing we can do, Carmen, on the face of this earth. There's no power on the face of this earth that can disrupt God, that can thwart his plans, set aside his plans, or stop him in what he is going to do. And that, to me, again, coming back to the sovereignty of God, to me, that is something I rest in because I know that God never changes, and I know that no plan of his is going to change. And if I'm walking in his will, there is a sense, a hedge about me, and that the only time the backlash comes to me is is because God allows it. It just doesn't come randomly. I have no idea why this thought just popped into my mind, but, you know, because we're in a, con- a conversation uh, about disruption, I'm going to throw it on the water here. Sure. Um, have you ever... Have you ever thought you wanted something and you really, you know, you 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 thought this was the right next thing or this was the best thing and it didn't happen. And then um, it just wasn't very much further down the road of life that God just gave you something so much better and different. And had he not protected you from that first thing, you would have you would have not been able to receive the greater blessing, the greater thing that God had. I mean, I think that his disruption we have to sort of be mindful that what God intends is always best. Yes. And sometimes we have to wait for it. And sometimes it means delaying gratification um, or saying no to some things. I just think that it's disruptive to be a Christian in waiting. Now, that's a good thought. I hadn't thought about it that way. I wish I'd, I should go back and amend the article. But, uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, there, there have been times when I wanted something. God didn't give it to me. I kind of got all disgruntled and crappy about it. And if I can use that word on the air. And then, I think so. I don't think that's on our no-no list. That's not on our no-no list. Okay. <laughs> and But then in the end, God gave me something even better. Okay, you do now have me thinking, I might have maybe had one too many cups of coffee already this morning. <laughs> so I feel like my mind is a bit of a, what was that game that you played where you bounced the ball and you grabbed the jacks? Like, I like totally feel like It was called jacks. Oh, well, there you go. Uh, that's the game never, my mind I is never playing knew right that. now. I've never even heard of that game. <gasps> what? Okay, well, next time we're together, we're getting a set of jacks. We're <laughs> All totally right, playing. We're it's it. really, okay. really fun. All right. It's really fun. Um, so, uh, so the jumping bean a place that my, that my mind just went to, um, uh, it, it's, it's just, it is extraordinary to me yeah. um, how consistent God is, even though we we view it as disruptive because it's counter to what's going on in the culture. I mean, I just, it, there's just this, this awareness, this aha that, oh, well, God doesn't change. And therefore the way God deals with things really doesn't, doesn't change, change, even though right. it's all personal. It's all deeply personal and it's going to be personal and God's going to deal with it personally, but it's, he's also going to deal with it in a way that is completely, absolutely 100% consistent with his own character and everything he's already revealed. And in his own timing. And his timing may be disruptive to us for very positive reasons, 
Maybe to get um, our attention, maybe to stretch us, grow us, you know, perseverance to the James one type of thing. And so uh, perseverance is huge, right? You know, we have such a, a culture that we, we get gratified right away. Delayed mm. gratification actually grows us in our faith with God, and that's disruptive to us. Yeah, if you pull that plant up before that carrot has actually grown, that is disappointing. Oh, well, you get baby carrots. It's terrible. Yeah, well, and it's just not enough. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so, Bill, you and All I right. are going to have to leave it right there. This has been a wonderfully disruptive conversation this morning. I think we should continue it uh, next week. Oh, you want to you do this again next week? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> well, well, we'll see. <laughs> I might have another idea. <laughs> okay. okay. Hey, thank you so much. You guys need to go to BibleandBusiness.com. The piece is excellent. It's really stimulating. Gets you, gets you thinking, helps you apply the Bible to life. Disruption is part of the Christian life. We'll be right back. Do you ever just feel like, you know, it doesn't matter if I vote. Um, the, ca- the, the die is cast. Um, the, the decisions are made by s- some people somewhere, and I'm, I'm not really a part of that. Or the whole thing is so corrupt, or, or there's really just not anybody worth I- I- voting for. There's not really, it, it wouldn't really make a difference if I engaged. Okay, getting to that place where we think that we the people don't really matter in uh, in a country that is governed by we the people is um, is actually deep down in the subject matter of what Sarah Chase is talking about. We've had her on before. Um, her book, Thieves of State, focuses on corruption globally. But she is really turning her attention and focus uh, to corruption right here in the United States of America. And when we talk about corruption, we are talking about that which happens among a group of people who we would describe as one percent of the population and what we forget is that we have the numbers there are 99 percent of us and we have a voice and we can be heard and we can make our concerns and our morality known um, but we cannot grow comfortable with the corruption um, and then just simply live in it and so sarah chase is coming back today to talk with us a little bit more um, about what she has learned in her research and what she's putting together in her forthcoming book which focuses not globally on corruption, but right here in the United States of America. So that conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. If you ever wonder why teens act irresponsibly, well, it's because they're irresponsible. And that'll never change unless they're allowed to deal with the consequences of their poor choices. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. When our kids step out of line, our immediate reaction is to ground them, to take away their phone, or to pile on extra chores. But in many cases, the natural consequence of their decision will teach the most valuable lesson. For example, if they choose to play video games instead of studying for a big test, they'll get an F. Or if they wake up late and miss the bus, they'll have to walk to school. See what I mean? So the next time your teen blows it, don't rush to deliver a punishment. Instead, Let the natural consequence work its magic. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Uh, Sarah Chase came on the program. She's the author of Thieves of State. And we talked about corruption uh, globally. And we started a conversation about 
the reality of corruption here in the United States. And I want to continue to till the soil of that conversation. Um, Sarah is working on a forthcoming book. And so I'm uh, one of my favorite times to talk with authors is when they are in the process of of writing the book, because this is when the 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 real soil is tilled. Um, and and the product is not yet out there. And so, Sarah, thank you so much. Welcome back. Uh, let me remind our listeners they can find you at Sarah Chase, C-H-A-Y-E-S dot O-R-G. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks so much for having me, Carmen. And that's a really interesting approach um, that I've never heard another uh, interviewer take, that you you get the author while the ideas are still sort of fresh and exciting and not fully formed. I love it. Not fully formed, not edited, um, and and still a work in progress. So I recently talked with Oz Guinness, and he's always working on the next book. And so you know whatever the whatever the publicist is pushing out there is what has just come out, right? But what Oz is already working on is the next book. So I'm always wow. asking him, what do you what do you what are you thinking about now? Because he's not thinking about what he wrote last year. He's thinking about what he's writing right now. So there you go. So I am asking you about um, what I will describe as the the moment that you turned to look in the mirror, like, right? So you have been this outward looking um, researcher, a journalist, you have been examining corruption around the globe for a really long time. Um, and you have really laid that out for us in, um, in, in your first book, Thieves of State. But then you turned to look in the mirror at our own country, at our own culture. What have you found? So moment. I mean, I have to say that Thieves of State includes an epilogue that suggests, hey, this ain't just the wogs. Like, it's not just those guys in the third world. We better take some of this into consideration ourselves. And one of the, I mean, the main point of that book is that when people are deprived of recourse on earth, if you will, a recourse through the civil political process against basically the structured theft of their of their common wheel, you know, of their of their money, of their labor, of their creativity by a clique of corrupt politicians and business people and criminals sometimes. When ordinary people are deprived of recourse against that, they will turn to extremes. Mm -hmm. Um, And I suggested, and this book came out in 2015, I suggested that we were cruising for a bruising, um, that there were likely to be extreme reactions to a similar phenomenon in the United States. But I just put it out there as a suggestion. And frankly, I think some of the extreme voting patterns that you've seen in Western countries, including the United States, you could put into that category. I mean, I think it was already happening, and then the election of 2016 happened, but but it was before, it was during 2016 that it really hit me. And I was listening to coverage of the last Supreme Court cases of the season, and one of them got a lot of attention. It was an abortion case. But there was another case that, that was decided that same day, which was about the governor of Virginia or the former governor of Virginia, Bob McDonald, 
who had taken, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of whatever, right, of Rolex watch. There's always a Rolex watch in these stories, you know, um, his daughter's wedding expenses, loan, cash loans, luxurious vacation house, a Ferrari that he could ride around in, all this kind of stuff. By a businessman, businessman, a tobacco guy who was trying to peddle so-called dietary supplements um, based on tobacco um, in return for clinical trials. Like the governor was supposed to try to get the University of Virginia system to run clinical trials. Now the governor doesn't have, you know, um, uh, command authority, right, over the University of Virginia, but he turned himself inside out. Like he hosted lunches, he popped the pills in front of his own you know, procurement person to say we should list these as reimbursable for public, you know, for Virginia state employees. I mean, he did a bunch of stuff. Um, he was convicted of corruption, you know, um, in district court, the conviction, which is a unanimous jury trial, right? So unanimous, unanimous jury of us, of Americans, court of appeals, unanimous upholding of the conviction. Supreme Court not only overturned that conviction, it overturned it eight to zero. That was when we were one justice down. And my jaw hit the floor. I was like, not a single justice saw that as corruption. And then I'm listening to this on the radio, right, you know, and there's the usual panel of, you know, talking, whatever, pundits, um, which are usually selected to cross the political spectrum. Every one of the pundits said that they would have voted the same way. Mm. And I said, okay, there is a huge divergence here between what ordinary Americans understand to be corruption and the increasingly narrow and technical um, definition that the elites are giving it. And this is exactly what I've seen in, you know, developing countries. And so I, that was so shocking to me. It was not only the way the decision went, it was the unanimity. And I said, oh my God, you know, I've got to apply this same methodology to the United States. And so I love that you're doing that. Um, I'm looking at uh, a sentence in a piece that you have posted uh, on your website and where you are really laying out this broader definition of corruption. So if this broader definition of corruption uh, is to mean the systemic capture of government and its key functions by a network of people, and that network is pretty diverse, who then bend the government agencies into their service and not into the service of the public, um, if that is the way we could come to understand corruption, which I think is probably the way most of us out here in the real world understand corruption, that's why the system feels rigged, and that's why we're tempted not to vote, and that's why we're tempted to just throw up our hands and, you know, wag, wag our chins from side to side and feel very, very frustrated about the status of things. When we come back, Sarah, let's talk about some examples 
um, uh, from across the country. And I really want to dig in with you on this Jesus and the money changers. I know because uh, you've disclosed on your website that chapter two of the forthcoming book uh, really uses this, uh, talks about this story. I would love to dig into that as well. So when we come back, I'm going to continue my conversation with Sarah Chase. She is the author of Thieves of State. She is working on a forthcoming book. The topic is corruption right here at home. We'll be right back. Do you feel like uh, the system works against you? Do you feel like the system is rigged? Do you feel like there's just a small group of people uh, controlling the outcomes? And do you feel like uh, the government is no longer working for the people, but working for a really, really, really small uh, group of people? That is the concern uh, of Sarah Chase. You can check out what she is writing at Sarah Chase, C-H-Y-E-S. C-H-A-Y-E-S, sorry. Am I just skipping a letter in there? C-H-A-Y-E-S dot O-R-G, Sarah. And Sarah has an H in it as well. So I'm just going to spell the whole thing. S-A-R-A-H-C-H-A-Y-E-S dot O-R-G. Because I really do want people to go and check it out. And you actually invite people, if they have been victims of corruption, to uh, to tell you their story about what's happening in their town or community. What are some things that you've learned as you have asked that question here in the United States? Um, I actually, interestingly, haven't gotten um, from that request any... I've had people write into me separately, but I haven't... It, I haven't um, tended that website and done all the things that you're supposed to do to get a lot of responses. But, I mean, I think it's everywhere from um, uh, power plants dumping Mm -hmm. coal ash into river systems. Um, It's, I mean, near me in West Virginia, it's pretty interesting because it's a Danish company that wants to um, uh, put up a insulation factory. So it's a Danish company. It's really interesting. Why are they coming to West Virginia to, you know, produce their product? And I realized the answer is we function as a corrupt country, but with the rule of law. Like if you go to Angola to, to make your insulation, you're liable to all kinds of lawless, you know, like once you buy into the system, you bought into a, a lawless system and your plant could be nationalized. It could be attacked by rebels who are pissed off at the corrupt, um, you know, deal making. In West Virginia, it was done completely behind closed doors. The community had no input into whether this thing, which you know, stocks, poisonous chemicals like formaldehyde and things like that within, a, you know, a couple hundred yards of a school, all of that. And the decision was made basically in a drug deal with the uh, town council um, until citizens started to be aware and started protesting. Um, and, and, you know, and so now the company is planning to sue the... It, uh, sue the town if it were, or has threatened to sue the town if it were to go back on its permits. And the same thing has happened. I, I think some of your listeners probably remember the Dakota Access Pipeline um, fight in uh, North Dakota. 
I mean, a, a similar pipeline by the same company that made Keystone XL, uh, TransCanada, again, a foreign company, is um, under construction under the Potomac River, like a couple of hundred miles west of Washington, D.C. All of Washington, D.C. depends on the Potomac for its water supply, right? And Maryland, this pipeline goes under about four miles of Maryland between Pennsylvania and um, West Virginia. Maryland is refusing permits and TransCanada is suing Maryland. So you sort of get the benefits of a corrupt system, but also the benefits of rule of law. It's pretty amazing. So it makes- And you can work um, both sides. Exactly, I yeah. mean, exactly. So, so, so before I, we, Sarah, before we run out of time, I do, I would love to at least touch on um, the, the subject of Jesus and the money changers, yeah. because I just think this is such a provocative, provocative connection that you make. It was, I mean, and let me caveat, right? I am not a biblical scholar. Um, I tread on this terrain with great, you know, humility and, and um, you know, care. But what I, I started looking, you know, it's a very dramatic moment in the Bible. It's, and I spoke with a number of pastors who were quite uncomfortable with it. They obviously didn't know the passage very well. And they were uncomfortable speaking about it. And when I, you know, pressed them a little bit, it was because of the violence, right? I mean, even though he didn't hurt a person, it's a pretty violent action. You storm up the steps of the temple, you, you know, throw, just imagine the scene, you throw these tables over and the, and the lambs are bleeding and, the, you know, doves are squawking and the money goes flying all over the place. Um, and so I started looking at what the temple was. I had no idea. The temple was the most magnificent building east of Rome. It was luxurious. It, you know, had it had a military barracks inside it. It served as um, a bank. Um, it was like a treasury. It served as a seat of government. The walls were gold-plated. I couldn't believe it. Like gold-plated walls in the Temple of Jerusalem? So if you think about it in today's world, you're basically what, what Jesus was storming was a combination of Washington, D.C., Fort Knox, the Vatican, and, you know, the military base in Qatar, right? And, and, and then you start to understand what, what he was pointing at. And for me, you know, the, it, and in fact, the Bible says it was at that moment when the power structure was looking for a way to kill him. That's right. It's like when he was just preaching love and love thy neighbor and, and gathering ordinary people together, that wasn't a threat. But then when he points his coalition, his sort of egalitarian coalition that he had bound together across the identity divides of race and ethnicity and social class, but they're ordinary people. He bound those together as all one coalition. And then he points and says, these are the people who, are, who have corrupted both our sacred, you know, um, what is sacred, and also our worldly politics. 
Um, and that's what money does. Money converts ineffable values, like values that you can't count, into tra a transactional metal. And so it's a very, very powerful instrument which came into the world around 600 BC, um, money, that is. Yeah. Um, and so it's at that moment that the power structure says, we got to kill this guy. And but then the Bible says, but they couldn't because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. In other words, he had the numbers. Which is and, the point then that I think you want to uh, write large onto our hearts and minds as we approach 2020. We have the numbers. And exactly. that is that is the provocative part of this conversation. All right, Sarah, you and I have to leave it right there today. But I, I love this conversation and I want to return to it uh, with you again. Um, Jesus, you know, says to them, you have made my father's house into a den of thieves, but it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. The, the numbers are there and um, and we are the people who know the truth. So, Sarah Chase, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Have a great So when I say the word home, where does your heart go? And when we think about um, what the Bible has to say about home, we think about homeland and we think about uh, people as a home and we think about our family home or our place of origin. I hope we also think about the home that we have um, with the Father, you know, Jesus reminds us that in his father's house, there are many dwelling places. And if it were not so, I'm thinking here about John chapter 14. If it were not so, you know, he, he would not have told us that he goes and, to prepare, goes and prepares a place for us. But having said that he is going to prepare a place for us, we can trust that that's true. And we can trust that um, we're going to live with him in the father's house forever. Um, I'm thinking about Paul, who talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You know, we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, this physical body, is torn down, we have a building from God. We have a house not made of hands, eternal in the heavens. We have a home. And so as, um, as you face the challenges of this day, as you face the questions, um, let me encourage you to keep at least one eye on home. Keep at least one, uh, one eye on, on our eternal home in heaven together, uh, the Father's house. All right, friends, uh, Peter Kapsner will be with you hosting the next couple of days as I travel home to Indiana to the funeral of my Aunt Marilyn. Um, and thank you in advance for your prayers. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.